The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Joe Brennan about the thorny political issue of bankers' pay. He's also off to Davos next week for the first in-person World Economic Forum since before the pandemic, and he'll give me a tee-up of what to expect from the capitalist jamboree. But first to the inquiry into the sale in 2012 by IBRC of building services group SiteServe to a company owned by Dennis O'Brien. High Court Judge Brian Cregan is heading a state inquiry into the sale and he's issued a draft final report which Arthur Beasley has seen and has reported on for the Irish Times. And Arthur joins me now on the line. Arthur, to begin with, maybe you could just recap for our listeners' benefit um, the backdrop to this IBRC SiteServe report. Okay, Kirov, this is a very long-running story and in essence it takes us back to the very darkest days of the crash in Ireland SiteServe was a building services company that had been floated on the stock exchange in 2006, which was just as the property market peaked and before it began what was a slide and eventually turned into a catastrophic property and banking collapse, the consequences of which are known to everyone at this point. What it meant for SiteServe is that it was in some considerable difficulty by the end of 2011, Going into 2012, it had bank support from Irish Bank Resolution Corporation, which was then owned by the state. And that was the new name that was put on Anglo-Irish Bank after its nationalization. The company had about 150 million euro in debt as part of its sale to Dennis O'Brien just before, say, or the agreement was reached just before St. Patrick's Day in 2012. IBRC agreed to write off uh, about 119 million of the company's debt. So that, in, in essence, was a loss to the taxpayer. In the background, we were, was a complex of huge losses for IBRC and Anglo-Irish Bank. The ultimate losses in, in, in that particular business arising from the crash were in the region of 32 billion. So this was one part of that wider picture, a significant amount of money, but one which in essence is dwarfed by the overall losses of Anglo-Irish Bank in the crash, which amounted to some $32 billion. And how did we come to the point where Judge Brian Cregan was asked to investigate this matter? Well, the, this particular transaction became a matter of political controversy in the Dáil, Assertions were made by Catherine Murphy, TD, who was then an independent TD, soon to be the co-leader of the Social Democrats. Uh, Assertions were also made in anonymous emails that were sent to the then Taoiseach and Kenny and Michal Martin, who was then the leader of the opposition, the leader of Fianna Fáil, and uh, now the Taoiseach. Some of those claims centred around the suggestion that Dennis O'Brien, billionaire businessman, one of the largest borrowers from IBRC was receiving a, what was described as a cosy interest rate from the bank. In other words, an interest rate that should have been higher per market terms. There was a political furore around these allegations. And ultimately, the government in the middle of 2015, June 2015, seven years ago now, established a commission of inquiry to examine the site serve transaction and other transactions in which 
IBRC took a big loss on the, on the loans that it had. Yeah, and here we are seven years later um, and uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, time has passed and quite a lot of money has been spent. And we're now at the position where uh, Judge Cregan has produced a draft report. Now, you've seen uh, you've seen um, some of that draft report and you've been reporting on it for the Irish Times over the last uh, number of days. Tell us what the key elements, the key findings are so far. OK, well, uh, th- this is a draft that was circulated to witnesses last Thursday for their observations. It follows on an earlier draft that the judge circulated in the autumn of last year. At that point, he sought observations and remarks from witnesses. He received more than a thousand pages of of observations from witnesses, and then he went off to write this uh, draft of his final report. The draft runs to several hundred pages, and in essence, the judge upholds The central finding of the prior draft, which was that the deal done was not commercially sound. And then he goes on to say that the transaction was based on, as he describes it, on misleading and incomplete information that SiteServe provided to IBRC at the time of the deal. And does he say what that misleading information amounts to? What did it involve? Well, essentially what the judge says is that there was a process below the surface during the deal where events were going on or where discussions were going on that were not known to the bank. And then there was a process that was going on above the surface. The bank knew about what was going on above the surface, but it didn't know about what was going on below the surface. And some of those uh, things that were going on included the uh, the judge's finding in this draft report that the then chief executive of SiteServe and a co-founder of the business, uh, Brian Harvey, had a concealed financial interest in Dennis O'Brien's bid winning out. And what's the import of that art? What difference would it have made had the bank known that? I think what's going on essentially is that the judge is very critical of the terms on which the deal was done. He is very critical of the deal done. At the same time, in other aspects of his report, he finds that there is no evidence to suggest that uh, Dennis O'Brien had an interest rate that was described as cosy or anything like that. He's, he says he dismisses that claim. He says that the behavior of the IBRC management at the time was Overall, he has no criticism of, of, of its behavior. The criticism essentially is leveled at SiteServe in terms of how it, went along, how it went about securing this deal at a time when people felt that the company was about to go out of business. Yeah, we should say that all along, Dennis O'Brien has uh, rejected any suggestion uh, of impropriety uh, in relation to the deal. Um, and I'm sure he's uh, paying very close interest to this uh, draft final report. Um, now, you were writing this morning, Arthur, about uh, Arthur Cox's role in all of this. Arthur Cox would probably be the largest corporate law firm in the country. And it essentially was uh, acting um, on, on both sides of the arrangement. Uh, yeah, yes, indeed. The, the judge includes in the draft uh, a narrative account of what of of what went on. I mean, essentially, this was a transaction taking place at the height of the financial crisis, at the height of the crash, and many fir- corporate finance and professional services firms around town would have been involved in this in this transaction. 
Arthur Cox had been solicitor to SiteServe since it joined the stock market in 2006. And what uh, the draft report shows is that the company in the second round of the sale process was invited by Dennis O'Brien to act for his company, Island Capital, which was providing corporate finance to advi- advice uh, to him. Uh, there was a pretty intensive discussion within the law firm that went on uh, o- over a few days. And ultimately, uh, despite reservations on the internal conflicts committee in the law firm and among certain partners in the firm, the firm decided that it would act uh, for Island Capital in addition to acting for SiteServe. Now, some conditions were laid down during the discussion. Arthur Cox told Island Capital that if it was to act for it in addition to SiteServe, that it wouldn't be able to act for either of them in the event of a legal dispute uh, emerging between them. Uh, That was per the standard... Uh, Chinese walls rules that the company has. Chinese walls essentially is, is, a, is a term for procedures to uh, avoid a situation in which uh, there's any, there are any exchanges in a, comp- in a law firm that are detrimental to either side where the law firm is acting for clients who are on, the, who are on either side of a transaction or a dispute. They were the standard rules that uh, Arthur Cox applied. The draft report from the judge shows that what happened was that SiteServe retained the right to engage Arthur Cox in any legal dispute afterwards, and Island Island Capital did not. And that was essentially the arrangement that was put in place. But certainly at the outset of this discussion, it was very clear that five of the six, five of the six members of the Arthur Cox Conflicts Committee who discussed this proposal felt that the company shouldn't go down that road. Other partners in the company had reservations, but in the heel of the hunt, an arrangement was put in place whereby it would be available to SiteServe in the event of a dispute. Arthur, just wondering, where, does the, where do we go from here from the draft uh, final report? Well, the, the situation is that witnesses received the draft, as I understand it, last Thursday. They were told that they have two months in which they can make uh, their observations to the judge before he finishes the draft and publishes his report. The judge has has been granted several extensions from the government, and when he was granted his last extension in March, that extension was for five months. So essentially the judge uh, has a deadline of uh, sometime in August, at the end of August, to produce the report. The big question, however, is as to whether any of the individuals mentioned in the report seek to challenge the findings in the draft report uh, in judicial review proceedings before the High Court. Now, it's simply not possible to say at this point whether any of them will. Uh, It's a very long draft report. One imagines that a a lot of people are reading it very, very carefully. Uh, Any decision to go to the High Court clearly would uh, be uh, rather expensive. Uh, Having said that, it's also the case that it is known that several of the witnesses in their observations and remarks on the draft report that went out last August uh, were uh, highly opposed in very trenchant terms to what the judge had set out in the previous draft. So we just don't know. But if there is no legal challenge, the final version of this report should come out by the end of August. 
Arthur, you mentioned uh, Catherine Murphy's role in bringing this uh, to the public's attention and it being a key element uh, in this uh, uh, in this investigation being held um, in Judge Cregan's work. Has she had anything to say to date um, on the uh, on the report, or has she had sight of it? That's a very good question, Kieran. I I I I I simply don't know. Um, I mean, the commission has been operating. Uh, behind closed doors for seven years. This is the 12th month of the seventh year of its work, essentially, right? The extent of her engagements with the inquiry are not clear to me at this point. I don't know what her response is going to be to the draft report. The reality is that uh, pretty heavy legal strictures have been imposed by the judge. And uh, at this point in the proceedings, no one is saying anything about what he has found in this draft. Now, he was asked to investigate uh, other transactions involving IBRC. Any sense of where they're going or whether whether he's going to uh, continue with that work? Well, the judge uh, has issued a series of interim reports to uh, the government. And there's been, a, I mean, in, in, in the years since the commission was established. And in, in uh, some of those interim reports, he has essentially called into question his capacity to investigate all of the the other transactions which uh, were within his terms of reference. Those transactions involved uh, a loss above a certain amount to IBRC. So I I think there's an expectation, given that this particular investigation into SiteServe has gone on for so long, um, I don't think anyone expects that the judge will now proceed to... uh, investigate to the same degree of with the same degree of detail or depth uh, each of the other transactions because there are so many of them and uh, essentially this would this would be work if the side serve deal is anything to go by uh, this would be work that would go on for many 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 years and I don't gauge any appetite so the question then is as to whether a decision is made to uh, bring the investigation to a halt or bring the inquiry, the commission of inquiry to a halt. We're not there yet because the SiteServe report has not been published. But I think that is a question that will be raised if and when the report is published uh, by the end of August, assuming the process is not delayed by any challenges in the High Court. Arthur Easy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, Joe Brennan will join me to talk about bankers' pay and next week's World Economic Forum from Dallas. With increasing pressures, Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment and, importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, Bankers Pay is back on the agenda following Francesca McDonough's recent resignation as Chief Executive of Bank of Ireland for a better paid senior role with Credit Suisse. This week, Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue launched a public consultation on the issue to gauge views on whether the €500,000 pay cap should be removed, along with the super tax on bonuses. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times has covered the story and he joins me now. Joe, welcome back to Inside Business. Now, Bankers Pay has been in the headlines Again this week with the Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunne, who deciding he's going to carry out a public consultation 
to try and get uh, some views on the pay caps that have existed since uh, 2008. Maybe just uh, remind us of those pay caps that are currently in existence. Yeah, and I suppose the consultation paper is generally about the future of banking. It's covering a number of issues just in terms of, you know, whether... It's all on the back against the backdrop of Ulster Bank and KBC exiting the market. That's kind of uh, prompted the the government to kind of assess where things are in terms of banking. And there's a consultation uh, process at the moment, and they're looking into everything in terms of you know from you know our banks meeting the kind of the needs of customers, consumers, and SMEs, mortgage choice, the issues of shrinking competition within the market, regulation, ongoing digitalization of banking. But the thorny issue of bankers' pay has turned up as well as one of the. Uh, the questions that uh, the public are being asked to kind of give their views on as part of this whole kind of consultation process. Obviously, this matter has been going on for the last decade or so. Uh, pay caps were brought in for executives for most banks at 500,000. Back in 2009, shortly after uh, taxpayers were forced to uh, guarantee the banks. And then in uh, 2010, as Ireland was going into a, into a, an international bailout, the government of the day decided to kind of enshrine variable pay um, restrictions in the the, the finance act the, uh, that they were uh, that they were kind of writing up at the time, and by doing that, they were putting they, what they did was they they slapped on a prohibitive eighty nine percent taxation, basically on on any bonuses, and that covers all kinds of incentives and even inclu- includes things like, you know, uh, subsidising healthcare. So it's been going on since then. The, the problem now is, is there's no sunset clause in that and it's cropping up as an issue for banks for, for some time. They're kind of arguments for and against as to why you would remove the restrictions. For would be, you know, including the fact that, look at a lot of the, or most of, if not all of the senior executives, uh, senior level people in the banks that were there before the crash have now left the banks. Banks themselves are, are operating with, you know, much higher levels of capital and higher level capital levels uh, versus EU banks. Now, you'd have to also include the fact that part of that is down to the fact that actually taxpayers uh, contributed to the recapitalization to a large extent uh, during the, the crisis. Also, the, Ireland is operating the, uh, the strictest kind of mortgage rules in the, in the European Union. NPLs, non-performing loans, have, have fallen over that period as well. And in addition to that, you have had the European Union as part of uh, capital rules it brought in almost a decade ago. It slapped various kind of restrictions or guidelines that restrict pay, uh, variable pay across banks, across uh, across Europe anyway. So even if they were to... Uh, to reintroduce variable pay, it would be against uh, the backdrop of a very kind of much more restricted kind of uh, restrictive pay regime uh, versus what it was b- before then. An issue for for banks, uh, the major kind of issue that banks would say is that it's, it's leading to an unlevel playing field when you see that banks are competing against other IFSC type institutions in Dublin as well for for talent, um, you're also seeing that they're also competing against uh, fintech and even big tech. Um, I think Bankers uh, Payment Federation Ireland carried out a bit of a desktop uh, piece of research there recently, and they were just asking, it wasn't unscientific, but they were asking the HR divisions of the various banks, you know, what the attrition levels were. Uh, and they were saying that the attrition rates, you know, for areas like data sciences, data analytics, uh, cybersecurity roles, compliance, they were higher than we're seeing elsewhere across the industry. And also there were trends that, you know, some job offers were being refused at entry-level uh, positions higher than in, in, in the past. But Joe, sorry, it strikes me that if you've got an entry-level position, 
I mean, the pay cap is half a million, right? I mean, what's to stop them from paying somebody a really good salary? Uh, okay, except you can't pay them a bonus, but you can pay them a really good salary. Presumably entry-level people aren't, aren't coming in at half a million. No, they're not. I mean, look, at see, entry-level uh, pay for banks is about 30,000. But I mean, the, the big thing there is is variable pay. You don't want to lock in people at higher rates. Banks are trying to keep their, their costs down. So at times when banks are profitable and are generating decent enough returns, that's why you have variable pay. So it's like an accordion. It can be brought in and brought out depending on the performance of the bank. So you don't want to lock in higher fixed rates. That's, that's the issue. Yeah. Is it a bit of a cop-out by the government to go to the public to ask them their views on bankers' pay? Because uh, politicians are elected by the people to make the decisions around policy and to set legislation. Yeah, look, it's an attractive situation. I mean, what minister, finance minister, is going to bring the idea to colleagues that he's going to, uh, he wants to uh, lift uh, pay restrictions for banks? The fact that this is actually enshrined in law, this has to go through a parliamentary, has to go through an Oireachtas uh, vote. You know, what politician is going to vote for an easing of the uh, of the variable pay restrictions? That's the, the ultimate problem. Uh, the fact that there is no sunset clause for this it has to be brought to a vote at some stage. Uh, and certainly the political climate at the moment makes it, you know, very difficult, if not impossible, to actually bring the, the whole idea, the whole notion of easing uh, bankers' pay uh, before before a vote. But also against that as well, I mean, there are a number of reasons why they shouldn't. First and foremost, you have, you know, an ongoing uh, tracker mortgage scandal, and that hasn't been, you know, fully dealt with. The two biggest banks in the market, AIB and Bank of Ireland, the central bank hasn't concluded enforcement uh, investigations against both of those. And they both set aside individually around 70 million in terms of fines. How could you be easing restrictions on, on, on pay when that hasn't been dealt with? The other thing is, you know, it's very easy from the outside to look in and say, look, you know, commercially, it's, it doesn't make sense maybe to have these restrictions in place. But you have to understand that, you know, trust levels in Ireland vis-a-vis the, the, the banking sector are exceptionally low. If you look at even last week, we saw the, uh, the government had uh, the publication of a survey into the um, public perception of banks. And, you know, it highlighted that, you know, 42% of people who were surveyed said that the culture of banks had improved since the crisis. But that means that almost 60% believe that there had been no change in terms of the culture of banks since the crisis or that it had deteriorated over that period of time. And also against that backdrop as well is you have the fact that banks who, you know, the surviving banks received about 30 billion of a bailout during the financial crisis. Only two thirds of that's been paid off to date. Yeah, well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, based on that survey, then it seems highly unlikely that the public is going to uh, tell Pascal Donoghue that he should... Uh, loosen the reins on uh, bankers' pay. So maybe that gives them some cover, but uh, it's still a, a political uh, cop-out, uh, surely. And the other thing is, Bank of Ireland has repaid all of its bailout money and more. Um, and its chief executives, Richie Boucher and Francesca McDonough, were never um, uh, subject to that half a million um, pay cap. So what's to stop Bank of Ireland from saying, listen, we've repaid all, all our money. Your shareholding is now, uh, it's below 3%. We don't know precisely, I don't think. Uh, what the state's remaining shareholding is, but the state is committed to getting rid of the the last remaining shares. Um, So we want to move to a normalised arrangement because what we do know is that Ulster Bank and KBC weren't subject to um, these restrictions, were they? Now, they're exiting the market, but it was only the Irish domestic banks who were bailed out by the state that were subject to them. 
Yeah, Bank of Ireland's been making that exact point for the last number of years in its annual report. Its chairman has been making that point. But what's to stop Bank of Ireland from actually unilaterally just deciding, well, we're, we're, going, to, we're, you know, we're going to offer a higher pay level to our executives? I, I understand that the bonus issue is slightly different. But in terms of, of pay, what's to stop Bank of Ireland from operating outside the cap? So, well, they'll be up against the government straight away. Um, can they be stopped? Uh, probably less so now, but it's the variable pay issue. Uh, that's the, the big issue. You know, in, in terms of 500,000 as a cap for most banks, maybe Bank of Ireland is higher than that, but a 500,000 as a cap for most banks is not hugely out of kilter, you know, for, with banks of a similar size across Europe. What is out of kilter is the variable pay element of it. So it's the bonus issue that really is the contentious one. Yeah, it's the bonus issue. That's the, the main issue, as opposed to the, the, the fixed pay. And again, the argument would be that if you set a high level of remuneration for, for bankers, fixed pay, for it, it doesn't build anything into them to incentivize them uh, for, for various things. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it, it increases the overall cost, fixed cost base for a bank. Yeah. But correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure the bank executives, I'm sure the AIB chief executives are more than half a million Back in 2008. They were, but, you know, was it justifiable? Yeah, no, well, obviously not because of, uh, because of the collapse and the, and the very poor job. It's a variable pay issue that is the issue lower down the ranks as well, uh, you know, just in terms of attracting staff uh, and actually keeping them motivated and actually, you know, achieving the right outcomes. I mean, it's, it's a standard thing across the board uh, for, for other financial institutions and fintechs and uh, technology companies. So it's trying to kind of, you know, they're trying to align, you know, the incentive scheme with what's on offer for someone who's coming into a bank that has the alternative of going somewhere else. Now, this is the second uh, advisory Pascal Donoghue is having on this issue, isn't it? Because he hired Corn Ferry a few years ago to look at this uh, issue and they produced a report and we've never seen the report, but the, the indications are that Corn Ferry suggested some kind of loosening of the rules. Why hasn't he acted on that report? Good question. So that report, it was a report done by executive search firm uh, Corn Ferry, and that was a kind of a stalling tactic as well when, remember, back in 2018, AIB was looking to reintroduce in the future, get shareholder kind of approval to reintroduce some sort of uh, variable pay for, for, for banks, notwithstanding that, that actually there was the, the, the 89% tax against that in the first place and there was no sign of that being removed. But the government uh, decided to use its vote to vote against that. And they, as a, as a kind of a stalling tactic, they said, look, they, they look into the whole area of remuneration. They brought in Corn Ferry. Uh, Corn Ferry, they never published the report. The Corn Ferry report was submitted. I think the final report was submitted in late 2019, mid to late 2019. And that advised that uh, there should be a, a, an easing of the restrictions. And the government also got a kind of a, a fig leaf as well from the central bank, Philip Lane, the then uh, governor of the central bank, as one of his final acts in the middle of 2019 before uh, stepping down from the central bank and going to the European Central Bank to become the uh, chief economist there, had advised in a letter which was made public that there may be merit to reinstate uh, bonuses for staff. And it said, you know, if it, if it executed effectively, variable pay can be used to support and incentivize behaviours and be consistent with kind of positive uh, consumer outcomes and the execution of banks' uh, business and, 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 and risk strategies and also improve the, the corporate values and the, the long-term interests of banks and, and for other stakeholders as well. But that's been sitting on that report uh, and the advice from the central bank going back to 2019 uh, has been gathering dust ever since then. 
Yeah, what's the view of Sinn Féin? Because Sinn Féin, obviously, is the main opposition party and uh, they're riding high in the polls. There's every indication, uh, if they continue at this level, um, that they could be in government next time. Absolutely against easing of uh, restrictions on uh, pay restrictions for banks. Uh, So if it's difficult for the current government and the prospects of Sinn Féin being in the next government, it's impossible. So... Okay, so it's, I mean, it's not much comfort there for for the banks. It feels like we're going through the motions, Joe. Yeah, I don't see I don't see anything coming of it. I think it'll be addressed as part of it. There may be kind of more kind of political acceptance as part of that. Uh, that there are com- there's maybe a, a commercial kind of rationale for reintroducing uh, variable pay across bailed out banks. But I just can't see it getting to any stage where. There is a vote brought to the Oireachtas to uh, remove that 89% uh, tax on incentives. Yeah. Now, Joe, you're off to Davos uh, next week for the World Economic Forum. It's going to be the first one since January 2020, pre-pandemic. So the past two um, haven't been held in person, at least. Uh, What are you expecting from it? Well, happily enough, I don't have to kind of dig out my thick coat and uh, dig out my uh, snow boats to head up the Swiss mountains. I think it's a... Uh, we're low kind of uh, 20s in terms of degrees Celsius in terms of temperature up there at the moment. So it's going to be easier to get up there if nothing else. Yeah, this is the first um, uh, gathering since 2020. The one last year was uh, was cancelled outright, obviously in the middle of the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this there, there were kind of virtual events since then. There was a kind of an agenda kind of virtual event in January, but it's no substitute for the the traditional gathering of about 3,000 kind of uh, business leaders, politicians, uh, celebrities, uh, various activists and journalists uh, that generally attend the, the annual uh, jamboree in, in, in Davos itself. The, the usual kind of themes are kind of up there. Capitalism, the environment, the environment and, and climate change was a massive one uh, in the last uh, real live meeting back in 2020 when you had the, the likes of... Uh, uh, climate activist uh, Greta Thunberg pitched against the big kind of theme pitched against uh, Donald Trump uh, back then. Uh, that's also obviously continues to be a big theme. Other kind of areas are the areas of mental health and the arts and culture. These are coming up as as well as kind of uh, themes uh, as part of the whole Davos kind of uh, gathering. This time it takes place against the backdrop of central banks who moved in uh, very quickly after COVID struck the uh, global economy and injected, if you look at the four main central banks, injected the equivalent of about $11 trillion of capital or money into the financial system to save the the world basically from from collapse during COVID-19. They're now having to uh, remove that or wind that down and increase interest rates because we have a huge spike in in, in inflation uh, in, in recent times brought on by the the unwinding of the uh, of the, the the COVID restrictions and accelerated by the war we have seen in Ukraine in recent months and the big fear in markets and we see the way markets have turned sour in recent months. The big fear is that uh, the central banks, as they move to take away the punch bowl, will trigger a recession. Yeah, and who's there from the Irish side? Yeah, so the last time around, we were in 2020, we were heading into an election. So normally you have the Taoiseach and the, the finance minister, are usually kind of the mainstays who attend the... Uh, to attend uh, Davos, uh, neither went last time because they were heading into, they were in an election, pre-election mode. Uh, this time we have uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin. Um, he's turning up on Wednesday. There's an IDA, the annual, is the, every year, every time, every year it's held, 
IDA holds this kind of uh, off-site kind of uh, event for uh, knees up for um, for client uh, companies. About three hundred people t- tend to turn up at that, and the teacher will be will be turning up at that on on the Wednesday. Normally, you'd have the likes of Bono and uh, Dennis O'Brien who would be regulars of, of of Davos. Neither of those are turning up uh, this time round. There's a list of this evening. There, Davos, the organisers of Davos, are unveiling a list of the kind of the, the main kind of people turning up at the at the event. So, uh, I think that the, the big headliner so far is uh, Ukraine uh, President Zelensky, who will be delivering a, a virtual address uh, from Kiev um, to delegates at the at the conference. I think it's on the Monday or the Tuesday. Okay, Joe, we look forward to your reports uh, from Davos. Joe Brennan, thank you for joining Inside Business. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Arthur Beasley and Joe Brennan for joining me on the show. This episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your email by signing up to our Business Today Digest on irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. That's all for this week. Until next time, take care.